turning your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are back in Acts. Um, Acts chapter 21. And the title of our message this morning is um, Assumptions. Assumptions. Today we're going to discover how God often accomplishes His purposes through persecution. Sometimes that persecution comes when people make all the wrong assumptions about you, misunderstandings, misperceptions. Sometimes it, it, it's an honest misconception, uh, but more often than not, it's made up, it's fake. And we're going to see that in Paul's life today in really one of the most exciting stories in the New Testament. Well, it, it probably wasn't exciting for, for Paul, but it, it includes a riot. So we're going to be in chapter 21 in just a few minutes. Uh, earlier in verses 12 and 13, Paul had been um, uh, talking with some people who did not want to go, didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. I mean, there was nothing but persecution, nothing but trouble waiting for him there. And uh, 12, verses 12 and 13, uh, it says, when we heard this, uh, we and the people urged them not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered them this way. He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he comes prepared to give his life if, if, uh, if God calls, calls him home. Uh, and it had been very close to taking his life many times before this time. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 26. That's where we'll be today when we see this uh, kind of how to handle hardships, how to handle persecutions when they come, how to handle uh, false assumptions when they're railed against you. So the first thing we've got to do, we've got to endure misunderstanding. Sometimes we just have to endure it. And if you choose to follow Christ, you're going to be faced with misinformation about yourself. You're going to be faced with the public around you or even a close friend misunderstanding you. So let's pick up in verse 26, and I'll be reading through verse 29. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. Now, in just the previous a uh, few verses, uh, they said, hey, listen, Paul, if you're going to do this, this dumb thing and go to the temple right in the middle of Jerusalem, and you know th they're liable to notice you. So I want to be noticed. No, no, you, you want to go in incognito, but you want to go in holy. So we encourage you, there's, there's three or four other guys here, and they have this, uh, this holy rite that they're going through. It was a Jewish custom where you shave your head and put on a particular garment. And so he shaved off his beard and off his, shaved off his head, and so he walks in with these other guys, and uh, hopefully nobody will notice him, but such was not the case. So that's, that's what that verse is about. So verse 27, When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! As if he was attacking them, you know. 
Help! This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people, and against our law, and against this place, meaning the temple. What's more, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, although there were no Greeks with him. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they just supposed, there's the assumption, that Paul had brought him into the temple. So we're going to pause right there. You know what, what happens when we assume, don't you? I'm not going to go there. We make assumptions about things we really don't know anything about. Uh, we make assumptions about people that we don't really know anything about. Be very careful how you perceive another person, how you perceive a situation. Careful with too quick of an assumption. That's just good advice. Just let it settle there and marinate for a little while. But some unbelieving Jews from Asia saw Paul in the temple, and they went ballistic. As we've learned in Acts, Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and so these religious legalists knew him and they didn't like him. Many of them would have been probably part of the earlier riot that occurred in Ephesus. You remember Paul wanted to go in and make a defense of himself in the gospel, and his friends had to pull him back. And they sent some, some kind of surrogates to go in, hey, you guys go in there, you know, that's easy, easy for them to do. And, and some others went in and tried to make, but they were just, you know, they tried to make a defense, but they were just shouted down. That was in Ephesus. So Paul was nearly torn apart there in Ephesus. So maybe some were in the temple. It was a holy feast. It was a time where outsiders would, would come, Jewish outsiders, people who didn't live in uh, Jerusalem. But actually, because of his Jewish background, Paul was on his way into the inner court of the temple. But these enemies of the gospel stirred up the crowd. Now, that phrase, stirred up, literally means confused. They confused the crowd. They deliberately spread misinformation to accomplish their murderous, their heinous plot and their plans to, to really destroy Paul. Anybody, you, you ever hear any misinformation today? You just don't know who to believe anymore. We have such a lying world that we live in. And these religious people yelled out for help as if Paul was an assailant. And they made three charges against him in verse 28, accusing him of teaching everyone everywhere. Once again, be careful of people who... Uh, generalize and overgeneralize and say, you always do this all the time. That's not true of anybody. Nobody does anything everywhere, every day, all the time, 24-7. I mean, except breathe. All right, but nobody's accusing us of that. So, you know, they're saying, hey, that's what people do, though. When they're trying to work up a crowd, they will overgeneralize and exaggerate. Okay, so here are the three things that, he's, that they claim he's doing. He's against Jewish people. And they accused him of being anti-Semitic, which is rather funny because Paul was a Jew of the Jews. 
Secondly, they, they said uh, he's against the law of God. During the Feast of Pentecost, people were celebrating God's law. So you can imagine what he's, he's doing. What would God say? He's teaching people against the law. That really fired him up. And he said, also, he's against this temple. Interestingly, they made the same claim about the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 6, verse 13 says, Stephen faced similar charges before he was martyred, and they set up, it says that they, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this place and the law. Herod the Great wanted to be liked by the Jews, so he decided to build them a temple, kind of fashioned after Solomon's temple, but far greater and, and uh, more exquisite uh, in size and, and in beauty. But that temple had been destroyed and had not been uh, completely rebuilt. So Herod's temple was huge in comparison. You see a, a picture of it up here, you know, kind of a model. You know, it doesn't exist anymore. But the whole temple mount was about the size of 20 football fields. The temple took 40 years to build and was uh, surrounded by a thousand pillars. The temple had some specific rules regarding what kind of people could go where. Gentiles could gather for prayer in the outer courtyard, that big area. Women could meet in a little bit closer, Jewish women, in the court of women. And the Jewish men could go in all of that area kind of surrounding the large building, uh, the large temple there, you see. And that, that would be the outer courts or the uh, inner courts, the courtyard of Israel. The priests could go in to the holy place. And only the high priest could go into the most holy or the holy of holies, and then only once a year. They charged Paul with defiling the temple, which is the same word or similar word to pollute. Polluting the temple by bringing Greeks into the inner court. But they couldn't find any. This was not true, but they weren't really looking for the truth, were they? They persisted in that false claim. So separating the court of the Gentiles from the other courts stood a barrier beyond which no Gentile could pass. And on the wall was a description. And they've actually got some of the uh, stone work that it was inscribed on. And, and on the inscription was read this warning to all pagans, to all Gentiles. It said, No foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. And they had it actually in several places so that nobody could make a mistake. Can you imagine if we had a sign over our sanctuary doors saying, Beware, non-believers. Yeah. We, we would never do that. Or, or what if we said, Here is the court of the Baptist. And here in the sanctuary, the court of the Southern Baptists. Well, the Romans honored 
this prohibition. They felt like it was okay. You guys can do what you want to do there. They, they even allowed them, if they could prove it, if they wouldn't riot like they're doing now, they could even stone a Gentile for going into the wrong place. So after starting with a general accusation based on assumptions, they got more specific in their charges. They assumed or supposed that because a Greek named Trophimus was seen with Paul, he must have, must have gone into the temple with him. But this wasn't true. But they're really not after the truth at this point. They saw this as their chance to finish the job they started in Ephesus. So they dragged him through the various courtyards into the courtyard of the Gentiles where it was lawful for them to stone him to death. The truth is a scarce commodity in our culture as well. Some people simply don't care if something is true as long as it lines up with their feelings or with their belief system. This sentence seems to capture that. I came across this quote. I, I really loved it, I, so I put it up on the screen. With feelings being more important than facts, we clamor onto the raft of a captivating story and paddle to safety more than we assimilate the facts and stand on firm ground. You know, assimilating or bringing together the facts of something takes time. It takes work. It's a lot of, lot of effort. We would just rather read the little snippet that's out there and just run with it. Postmodernism is the prevailing philosophy of our day, which is the belief that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Rather, it's objective or subjective, or, or, or truth is personal. You have your truth, I have my truth. The philosophy is not only out there, but it has invaded the evangelical church as well. George Barna, doing some research on this, found that 53% of the born-again believers do not believe in the absolute truth. Here's what I want to say to that. Build your faith on facts, not feelings. Build your faith on facts, not feelings. We need to talk back to our feelings instead of letting them run our lives. Too many of us let our feelings drive us when the Bible calls us to let the facts of God's, worth, of God's Word really be our source of truth. Sometimes God accomplishes His purposes through persecution, yes. Sometimes that comes through misinformation and assuming things about somebody that's just not true. So sometimes we have to endure misunderstandings, but also we need to expect persecution. Expect persecution. Verse 30 tells us what happened when the misinformation spread around. It says, verse, verse 30, the whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together and they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. 
So something similar happened to Jesus in his day. You read Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. Let me read it for you. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? In Acts chapter 16, verse 19, we read Paul and Silas that they were seized and dragged into prison. Uh, it, it happened all the time. Innocent people being caught up in mob mentality and being persecuted for doing what was good and doing what was right. Look at Acts verse, uh, chapter 20, 21, where we are, and look at verse 31. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. And that was true. They had worked up a really good riot. I want you to see this picture again of Herod's temple, the model of Herod's temple. And notice up in the right-hand corner this uh, rather large, grotesque edifice. This, uh, that building that you see higher than the temple uh, was something called the Antonia Fortress. And the commander of the regiment that this verse speaks of was an officer in charge of special, for, uh, special forces uh, entrusted to keep an eye over everything going on outside the temple, but in all those courts where all the people were. They didn't want riot, and, and, and the people knew that they were watching, so they kind of avoided riots. But this day, they didn't avoid a riot, and, and the soldiers saw them. They were probably housed in that fortress, uh, a thousand Roman soldiers. And by the way, the Jews resented the thought that the Romans had to build uh, uh, an edifice like that so close to their temple and taller than Herod's temple. Well, when this military officer saw what was happening, uh, verse 32 tells us just what he did. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. That's good. <laughs> you know, listen, they didn't waste any time getting down there. They were ordered to run down there, stop this riot, and they put an end to Paul's beating. A centurion saw over about 100 soldiers, so we know that at least there were 200 soldiers on the scene. In verse 33 we read, Then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. I wonder if the prophecy of Agabus back in Verse 11 of this same chapter about Paul being bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles came to mind here. Let's continue reading verse 34 uh, and following, 34 through 36. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Isn't that the way it is with mob mentality? Nobody really knows why they're there. Since he was not able to get a re reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. And when Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So even with the Roman soldiers surrounding him, they were trying to pelt him and, 
and, and trying to kill him, trying to get to him. They didn't care about the soldiers. That's how much they were out of their minds. He had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mass of people following were yelling, yelling, get rid of him. Get rid of him. Just 30 years earlier, Luke 23, 18 tells us another crowd turned upon the Lord Jesus and called for his death. They cried out together, away with this man and released to us Barabbas. We don't like to hear this, but Jesus predicted problems, predicted persecution, that they would all come to his followers. But look at this. Jesus didn't preach the prosperity gospel. He preached the persecution gospel. Luke 21, verse 12 says, But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, uh, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul writes the Thessalonians in chapter 3 that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will live a life free of persecution. You know, if, if, if I was going to fill out the last part of that verse, and I'd never seen the verse. They say, Ted, what do you think it's going to say? That's what I would put. If you live a godly life, everybody's going to love you. Turns out I was wrong. You will be persecuted. Many Christ followers today are persecuted and mistreated. Listen to what Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I, I know we don't consider our brothers and sisters in Christ as scum. This is how the outside world will view us. Maybe not now, but someday. Does God accomplish His purposes through persecution? Absolutely. Many times he does, which is why we need to, number three, number three, embrace gospel opportunities. We need to embrace gospel opportunities. Well, like Paul did. Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands upon you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. 
Let's learn how Paul laid the groundwork for a gospel presentation beginning in verse 37. As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, Am I allowed to say something to you? He replied, You know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Now, there's a, there's a, a far, far stretch. I, I, I mean, I'm sure Paul doesn't even look like that guy. But again, assumptions. Assumptions. Be so very, very careful. Paul said, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, please, let me speak to the people. And after he had given his permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them. In Aramaic, and then chapter 22 starts. And we're not going to go there today. Paul, it pretty much just tells his testimony again, does a lot what Stephen does, goes back into the Old Testament days, tells what God has done in his life. He doesn't win anybody over in the crowd, but it was a good try. I want us to close with just a few pointers of evangelism, a few pointers that we can pick up. Number one, he was courteous and respectful. He was courteous and respectful of the Roman soldiers that were around him. Even though Paul had been pummeled and shackled and roughed up, he doesn't tear into the officer. He doesn't yell and holler and scream. Instead, he turned to him and asked, may I say something to you? I mean, Paul must have been quite an individual. I mean, your life just a, that came that close to being taken. Paul would just say, again? By asking permission to speak demonstrated great humility on Paul's part. Makes me think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where it says, But in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Be courteous and respectful. Ask questions, number two. Ask questions. Paul didn't begin with a statement, but rather, rather a question. He didn't, he didn't say, hey, I've got my rights. It was a question that invited an answer in a similar way when uh, Philip ran up to the Ethiopian. You remember that? He, he didn't say, um, hey, let me come up there and I'll, I'll help you out. He said, uh, do you understand what you're reading? And the started a whole conversation that led to the salvation of the Ethiopian. It's always a good idea to follow the model of Jesus and ask people questions. Jesus constantly asks questions. It helps people think in totally new ways and often reveals you know, the inadequacies or contradictions that they have in their own thoughts. They'll, they'll begin to see you in a different light. They'll begin to think that, now, well, maybe the way I used to think of it is so maybe the way I used to see Christianity has not been true. In this instance, the officer responded by asking a couple of questions, what, which led to clarity regarding the false assumptions that were being addressed. When Paul spoke, the officer realized 
Paul was not a commoner. He said, you, you speak Greek? You're a well-educated person who speaks Greek? Up until then, he thought Paul was, was an Egyptian leader come to start another riot in the city. Assumptions. Assumptions. Number three, clear up mis, uh, misconceptions. Whenever you have a chance to share the gospel, clear up any misconceptions misconceptions it's highly likely the person that you're witnessing to has some misconceptions about christianity about what you believe listen to what paul said in uh, verse 39 paul said i am a jewish man from tarsus of cilicia citizen of an important city now i ask you let me speak to the people paul was Jewish by religious background, Roman by citizen, Greek by culture, and Christian by new birth. As a Jew, he had every right to be in that temple. The town of Tarsus had a great reputation. It was known for commerce and culture and scholarship. Paul was a citizen there, meaning that he was not a rebel. Here's a fourth way. Clear up misconceptions, yes, but get people's attention. Get people's attention. When speaking with someone, it's important to try to get and keep their attention. I have been in houses before where the TV's blaring. And I walk in, a planned visit, scheduled visit, sit down. And they don't turn off the TV. And about 10 minutes go by, and I have to say, hey, do you mind if we, uh, I don't hear so well. Can we turn off the TV? I can hear a lot better. Instead of, you don't ever want to say, turn off that trash box. Um, and and Paul, Paul did this. He, he got people's attention. He, he says, motioning with his hand to the people. It must have worked because there was a great hush. Great hush came over the crowd. They really quieted down. And the last way, speak the language of their heart. Speak the language, you know, well, English, of course, Pastor Ted. I mean, speak on their level. Share Christ. If, if, if they don't have any church background, excuse all of the big words until later. The big words matter. Justification, sanctification. Those are important words. They're in the Bible. But maybe you can lead them to Christ without that language and speak to them where they're coming from. Meet them where they are. It says that Paul addressed them in the Aramaic language, in the Hebrew language. They perked up their ears at that point when he spoke their language. We've been learning how God accomplishes his, his purposes through persecution, and often that persecution comes through the most ridiculous assumptions about who we are. And what we believe. Ephesians 3.1 For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. A prisoner of Christ Jesus. Remember when Paul wrote these words he was under house arrest in Rome. He never says I'm a prisoner of Rome. Although he could have said that. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He didn't deserve to be there. His imprisonment was completely unfair. How could he still say a prisoner of Christ Jesus because perspective makes all the difference. Folks, listen. 
when hard times come. Be a student, not a victim. When hard times come, learn what you can and avoid all pity parties. Paul is not a victim because he saw God's hand in everything. Do we understand that great principle? Nothing happens to us apart from God. The situations that come in our life, just know God may have caused it. At least He allowed it. He's very much aware of what you're going through. Be a student. Learn what you can from that. Stop crying. Stop whining. Stop the pity parties. And I know we're all inclined to go there. Paul could do more in prison than he could out of at that moment. He wrote four books in our Bible from prison. It's not wrong to want to be out of prison, but seize the day. Seize the circumstance wherever you are. If you feel like you're in prison, don't complain about the chains. Jesus put you where you are. God accomplishes His purposes through persecution, yes. Many times he does. When persecution becomes personal for you, hold on to those three truths that endure the misunderstandings. Try to clarify if you can, but fighting back against every accusation against Christianity is a waste of time. Endure. Expect persecution. And, and when that persecution comes, embrace those opportunities. Share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to this time of the Lord's Supper, we take this communion together as a fellowship of believers. Father, because our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, because you have, you have come down to us, you have given us your grace. Father, we, have, we yield ourselves to you. We've, we've, we've come to the point where uh, we realize there's nothing more that we can do. There's nothing else that we can do to save ourselves. And that you are the only one, you, Lord Jesus, are the only one who accomplished that salvation on the cross. We thank you, Father, for salvation. And we pray, we pray that if there's anyone here that right now, they have, if they've never said yes to you, if they have never yielded their hearts and lives to you, that they would abstain from taking the Lord's Supper and be praying for and see salvation, see the gospel message in this Lord's Supper. Because the Bible says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, I pray for all of us who are born again that you'll cleanse our hearts, that we'll be ready. We'll be ready, Father, to take this Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray.